Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we pass judgment on all the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III. My name is Ben Clark, and if you're listening to these episodes as they come out, I hope you've all had a wonderful, happy, and safe Christmas and New Year, and are ready for whatever fresh hell 2023 will bring us. Now, I am all set with my research and notes to continue our series and record Queen Joan of Navarre and her husband, King Philip IV. But unfortunately, my co-host, Eliza Summers, has come down with a sore throat and has been unable to record an episode for the past week. So rather than leave you all without an episode, we thought we might go back to the archives of our Patreon to give you a little taste test of what you can expect over there, because there's plenty of content to tide you over until we continue our French Monarch series if you join up at the Economy Plus tier. And who better to introduce you to the Patreon than the first of our bonus subjects, the man himself, Vercingetorix. That's right, we're leaving the 13th century for an hour in ancient history. Uh, This episode is for those of you who thought we maybe skimmed over the history of Gauls too much in our first episode, which I certainly did. Uh, And this was a really big episode with a lot of tangents. I think Eliza was actually a bit sleep deprived when we recorded this, so expect her to be extra chaotic. But for the free feed, I've left out the second half where we pass judgment on Bersengedrix and rate him alongside our Frankish kings. So if you want to hear the score of the King of the Gauls, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and join the angry mob. Bonjour and bienvenue to the Battle Royale Patreon, where we are doing various things. And in this case, we are reviewing somebody a little outside of our history, but who's still very important. (laughs) I don't remember who it is. Come on, I'm like running on like two hours sleep. Je m'appelle Ben Clark. I'm Eliza (laughs) Summers. And as you can tell, the sleep deprivation is very... (laughs) Knowing. Well, I hope it leads to you being more, more, even more chaotic than usual on on this. Oh, yeah, I'll just be my weird <laughs> self, but extra weird, you know. Yeah, this dash of weirdness, a seasoning, a sprinkle. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sprinkle. getting into cooking metaphors. A garnish. Here. A garnish. A garnish. You are the garnish of this. A podcast. drizzle of a craziness. Drizzle. <laughs> um, just a okay, drizzle so. Of craziness. Mm. Uh, you, you, you've forgotten who we're talking about, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Well, his name starts with a V. Oh, it's um, Ver something. Vercingetorix. Brilliant. Okay. I'm glad you knew his name because my, my first note is, what do you know about Vercingetorix? <laughs> and the fact that you know his, his name is a good name start. Is called that and that's yes. about it. Do you know roughly when he existed? Is it around the time period we're talking about? Or is it completely way off? No, completely way off. Like early, so, early? Like define oh, early, oh. early. 
like episode like zero of, of the podcast we oh, mentioned so him. like um what like 400 500 no further back than that okay i'm just gonna have Ooh, to are we at like zero <laughs> first like and yeah well less less we're in bc eliza we're in bc oh we're going bc yay we're we'll mostly be in the 50s bc in this episode because that is when the 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 gallic wars also known as the Uh, roman conquest of gaul occur um, which is the uh, conflict in which vercingetorix is involved and known for Yes, yep, he's he's very well known for it, uh, but we'll get into it, we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start by talking about who the Gauls are, and recap that, because mm-hmm. we haven't talked about the Gauls yeah. in a while, because they have Not essentially like the been... Not the first episode, or second one. Yeah, <laughs> well we are, when we're in the podcast now, we're pretty much at the point where the, the Franks and the Gauls have kind of merged into the French a bit. Yeah, um, into the... I'm trying to think of a mashup between French and Gaul, the word. Frawls. Frawl? Yeah, I was thinking frawl. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so who, who, who are the Gauls? Who are the Gauls, Eliza? Where do they... They are a tribe. Were they nomadic? Or just fighty tribe? They are a collection of tribes. Um, yeah. They are not a single they. tribe, and that is very important. But they're episode. like multiple ones, but they're... Do they fight each other? Yeah, they're like... Think of them in the same way we think of the Germanic tribes, where they're all different. There's no one Germanic tribe. You know what's funny? You went for that, and in my head, the first thing I thought of comparison was the Mongolians before Genghis Khan. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. You definitely definitely think of them in that vein, only less less horse, horse archers and more... Uh, men, oh, I wish we could do an episode on Genghis Khan. That was so cool. Shirtless men with axes and moustaches. Well, we could do a, a Genghis Khan a little bonus, maybe, when we get to the 13th century. Um, mm. That's up for, like, the bonus episodes, they're open to whoever um, is of interest. Yeah. Um, like, I would also love to do a Salajan one. I think that's, that's maybe mm. on the cards when we get to the Third Crusade, so... We'll think about that maybe for our second or third yes. bonus. But yeah, so anyway, <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about first and get yeah. So um, as he listeners may know, the Gauls, in, this, in the simplest modern definition, they are a group of Celtic tribes inhabiting the land west of the Rhine River and north of the Pyrenees. Mm. So essentially encompassing not just modern France, but also... Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and a bit of the Netherlands. Oh, the Pyrenees. There's a dog. There's a dog. No, no, no. There's like a dog named after that breed. I think my grandma used to own it. <laughs> that breed. Like Do you Pyrenees know where the mountain dog or something? Uh, are you thinking of a Bernese mountain dog? Nope. Okay. I know it had Pyra. Well, ah, the Pyrene- Great Pyrenees. That's what it's called, and that's what my. And its name was Casper. Uh, brilliant. So it's Casper, a French guardian dog. So, so, so I'm Casper, bringing in the connection. <laughs> Casper then is from the the mountains between what we could now call France and Spain. He passed um, away. 
dog. Well, when he oh, was not alive. My, dog, my grandma's dog. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, I've completely lost my train of thought. Sorry, we're talking where they were located. Where the Gauls live. Yeah. So yeah. So the Gauls. The Gauls basically are the Celts who live in France. Are the Gauls. Mm. That's the that's the loosest definition. Although they're also in a bit of Italy as well, like northern Italy. Um, they also mm. they used to be in Germany, um, but they've sort of been pushed uh, west because mm. the German tribes are starting to be a thing around yeah. the fifties BC. So um, they have um, gone a bit a bit west, um, and mm. of course they they migrated across the Alps at one point into Italy. And they'd even sacked Rome at one point in, in way back early in its history in, in 390 BC, um, when mm. Rome was still a, a fledgling city. Um, but they were pushed out eventually by the Romans, who now at this point we're talking in the first century BC. They now control mm. Italy, um, and also thanks to their victory in the Punic Wars, they also have Spain and North Africa. Um, and a bit of, you know, Greece. Yeah. And most importantly, in this episode, they have a slice of southeastern Gaul, um, which they call, uh, well, part of it's called Provincia, or Provence, mm-hmm. as it is now, um, because it was the first Roman province uh, mm-hmm. north of Italy. And it was established during the Punic Wars, sort of as a buffer against Hannibal crossing the mm. Alps. Yes. So, so by the time we get to 58 BC, about a century after the Punic Wars, um, a guy yeah. named Gaius Julius Caesar is appointed as the governor of Gallia Narbonensis, which is now sort of Ooh. Provence plus a little more that the Romans have conquered um, along... Just along a little the, extra. Yeah, a little more of the south coast of... A side yeah. dish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've talked about Septimania before, which is basically that mm. strip, that Mediterranean such a great strip of name. France. Yeah, so this province is called Gallia Narbonensis after the city of Narbo, which is now Narbonne mm. in, in France. And remember Narbo, because it's going to be important. But it's basically like Caesar's capital in this time. Um. The capital of his province. We're going to try not to focus too much on Caesar, um, because there's a lot of Everyone other podcasts that took about Caesar. Yeah. Um, it is tricky though because he's if you're our. you're listening to this and you don't know anything about Caesar, where have you been living? Yeah, where have you been living? But you know, basically, at this time, he's still sort of in the middle of his career before he becomes dictator of Rome. But after he's you know gained a bit of power and influence, he's commanding several legions at this point um, to keep the Gauls at bay, basically. And yeah. um, he decides uh, to sort of sneakily expand his province into Gaulish territory. Uh, using divide and conquer tactics. Cool. So, the Gauls, they're, you know, they're not very good at cooperating with each other. They have all of these mm. feuds. They're basically a, a, a hundreds of little kingdoms. And yeah, so it's kind of hard. So, Caesar sort of allies with some, oh my God. gets them to fight you know others. What I thought it was like, I just think it was like. I just saw the perfect comparison. It's like um, the Wildlings Game of Thrones before they united under the um, king over the wall. It is like the Wildlings in Game of Thrones, you're right. And the the Wildlings are in many ways based on um, sort of Celtic tribes in a way. Um, I think Mm. they're a bit, in the show, they're a bit closer to like Vikings or Scots, yeah. 
Um, yeah. You know, Scots Celts, you know, they're related to the Gauls. Mm. So, bit True. of a bit of parallels Connection. there. And the Gauls, you know, they're, they're the complete antithesis of the Romans. Like, the Romans are these organized, uh, civilized, well armored, so very think... like formation, uh, clean shaven. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. and they see these Germanic tribes as like this barbaric. Gaulish tribes, Gaulish tribes. People. They're sorry, not Germanic. Gaulish, not Germanic. <laughs> GG, you know. They would be very offended if you if you call them Germanic because the Germanic people they they like even less than the other Gaulish tribes or the Romans. Oh. Um, so yeah, so so the Gauls, you know, they're this fierce warrior people. They re- they're yeah. the opposite of this formulated like civilized force i mean this a lot of this is according to caesar like they, they there's yeah, archaeological yeah. evidence that they were a bit more advanced like they had chain mail and that sort of thing um yeah but the whole the whole image of them that the sort of popular imagination now has is like you know an angry man with stripy trousers shirtless maybe he's painted a bit of woad a bit of blue paint on him and yeah i don't sp- think of stripy spiky, trousers spiky crazy red hair you know but you know if you look up paintings they always have stripy trousers for some reason they definitely have they definitely wore trousers um and the romans looked down on them for this because the romans wore skirts and they were very proud of their manly skirts yeah their skirts let's be honest (laughs) let's call them what they are actually the other day i was where i was wearing a kilt i was out wearing a kilt as you do um yeah and i was like I was, I was talking to a girl and, and she was like, I really like your skirt. And I'm like, it's actually a kilt. And she's like, it's a skirt. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. It is a skirt. <laughs> it's time men embraced the skirt. But anyway, um, Gaul's not embracing the skirt. Oh, yeah, Gaul's embracing trousers. Yeah. In Gaul. paintings, they always have stripy pants. And I'm not sure if that's a reflection of how things were or whatever. They're less striped and more like checkered. Yeah. But anyway, we have to move on from I'm what looking at. Yeah, we have to move sorry. on from what the Gauls look like. Otherwise, we'll never get to Vercingetorix. Yeah. So, okay. Let's keep rolling. Okay. So uh, Caesar is consolidating power in Gaul, mm-hmm. um, dividing tribes against each other. There are several attempts for Gauls to sort of unify a little bit against him. Um, uh, and when our story begins um, in yes. Uh, sort of the 50s BCE, Caesar's just defeated a major revolt by a guy called Ambiorix, um, mm-hmm. who is the leader of the Belgi, uh, the people who will give their name to Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're up in, you know, Belgium. Uh, Belgium. <laughs> yeah, so Caesar's kind of come way. up, Caesar's come up like in a sort of C shape around the east of France. So he's come from the south, mm-hmm. he's come up to Belgium along the Rhine River. So he's yeah. kind of controlling that bit and he's communing with some of the northern Gaulish tribes and the Germanic mm. tribes as well. He gets mercenaries from there. But yeah. the the middle and west of France are still very much in opposition from the Romans. And they're yeah. the they're the strongest force against the Romans. And the Romans have sort of tiptoed around them. <laughs> Like, sort of avoiding mm. the interior of France, so it's easy to get lost in all of the forests and the hills and everything. Mountains, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Caesar defeats this rebellion, and at this point it becomes clear to the rest of the Gauls that 
he was trying to fully conquer the whole region of Gaul. He wasn't just here to sort of reprimand Gauls for raiding. He was here yeah. to like fully subjugate them, um, which obviously, you know, caused a bit of alarm for, for uh, those Gaulish tribes who still considered themselves independent from Rome. Um, and by the way, Caesar also has just like caravans of slave dealers following him around to like buy captives off his legionaries when they oh, capture Gauls, women and children. So he's got this army going, coming through, sort of, uh, sort of punishing the Gauls, if you like, mm. and uh, whenever they are punished for not, uh, you know, getting tribute or whatever they're expected to do, yeah. um, the women and children and young men, presumably, all rounded up, sold into slavery, back to Rome. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, part of how Caesar earns the fabulous wealth that he will eventually use to go and become dictator of Rome. So, mm. by the way, legionaries um, are soldiers in a legion, uh, yeah. which is the largest unit of a Roman army, uh, consisting of about 6,000 men in the first century. Mm. So whenever I say legion, it's like max 6,000 men. Okay. But probably usually less because of all the, the dying. Um <laughs> So mm. the Gauls, uh, and here's a quote from, actually, by the way, I should mention, our primary source for this period is Julius Caesar. <laughs> um, he's basically writing a little travelogue um, as he goes around, <laughs> which is... Uh, His little journal diary. Little journal, but it is, you yeah, know, it's today. obviously a heavily edited journal, uh, which is, yeah. then sp- uh, is then published back in Rome and used as basically propaganda. So... Of course. Take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, yeah. Because all future historians will base... things. Yeah, we'll base what they say on Caesar. Um, we don't have any other writers that we know about who wrote about the Gallic Wars in this detail. So, mm. here's... With that said, here's a quote from Caesar. <laughs> so, the Gauls, <laughs> uh, quote, were indignant that they were... Uh, were indignant that they were reduced beneath the, the dominion of Rome and started, quote, to organize their plans for war more openly and daringly. The leading men of Gaul convened councils among themselves in the woods. They Mm. bewail the unhappy fate of Gaul, and by every sort of promise and reward, they earnestly solicit some to begin the war and assert the freedom of Gaul at the hazard of their lives. It was better to be slain in battle than not to recover their ancient glory in war, and that freedom which they had received from their forefathers. Mm. So it's basically yeah. the speech from Braveheart. They may <laughs> take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is time for the Gauls to once again attempt to unify under one leader. Ooh. But who should this be? <laughs> Maybe it's no in the title clue. of the episode. <laughs> So, uh, one man uh, who is said to have attended this council in the woods, which was happening in, in a, a sacred grove. By the way, the Gauls are of a druidic... It's always a sacred grove, isn't it? Well, their priests are called druids, and they, of course, <gasps> are, are very into communing with nature and uh, nature gods yes, and tree, tree spirits and that sort of thing. So, they have these oh, sacred spirits. groves, which are... They have these groves of trees, which are basically their temples. And... The Romans will end up burning all of these down. But anyway, um, 
It is kind of oh, Game of Thrones parallel as well. It is kind of like the weirwood, uh, sort yeah. of the the God's wood sort of things that you see in Game of Thrones. That makes me sad. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit sad, but well, we'll get to that at the end. Um, so, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, Gauls gonna try to unify, and uh, one man attend- attend- attending this council was a Gaul whose name at the time we don't know. Um, but who One would someday man to rule them all? Yeah, we don't know his name at this One point, man. but someday soon he'll be known by the name Vercingetorix. Um, Let's say his original name was Bernard. Bernard is a Germanic name. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't. Well, actually, I didn't know that. But the what's a good what's a good Celtic what's a good Celtic name? Brian. Brian's a good oh, no, Celtic. No, that name. just thinks life of Brian. Okay, um, I don't know. What's a good Celtic name? Googling. <laughs> Look, he's not going to be called that name for a little. He's going to be called Versingetorix most of the episode. So let's just. <laughs> okay, he's Versen then. <laughs> okay, so. Like Vern. Uh, shall we get into an etymology? Yes. Yes. Okay, <laughs> I knew that would excite you. So, um. So Vercingetorix, not his birth name, uh, by the way, he was born around 82 mm-hmm. BCE, um, uh, but it is more of a title, um, and okay. it combines uh, Gaulish words, which we think to be broken into three words. Um, so there's ver, meaning great, there's uh-huh. singeto, meaning warrior, and there's rix, meaning king. Okay. So great, great warrior, warrior king. king. Yeah. <laughs> it's good in it's title name. Oh, it's kind of like Genghis Khan as well. <sighs> yeah, it's like Genghis Khan, how he was called Temujin, and then yeah. Genghis Khan is a And title. Genghis Khan just is like, you know, means like carnival Khans, basically. Yeah, great so, Khan. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, contrary to what people may have learned from Asterix, not all Gaulish names end with Ix. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't know that, because, you know. Yeah, it's... It, it, well, you know, Asterix has the X at the end. Um, but And, like, yeah. all of the Gauls in Asterix have, like, X at the end of the name. That's not really a thing. It's not like um, Us in Latin, where, like, all the male names mm. end in Us. In reality, we don't know much about the Gaulish language um, in general. Though, of course, the Welsh, Breton, Cornish, and Manx languages are very closely related to what would have been Gaulish. Yeah. Um, these are called the Brythonic language uh, group, which are a, sub- a subset of Celtic languages. I will, I will stop being a language nerd. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of this is like uh, filtered through Roman sources. So we'll get Roman yeah. versions of Gaulish names. Um, and Exhibit A is Vercingetorix's supposed dad, who Julius Caesar gives the name Celtilus, which... Literally just Celtic. means like Kelty man. <laughs> Kelty man. Yeah. <coughs> it's not very creative naming. It wasn't um, Keltish enough. It's like if there was a Frank called Frank. Like, like, <laughs> it's like that. Um, but regardless of what his name was, Vercingetorix's dad was some kind of prominent figure among the Gauls. Um, mm. And they hailed from a tribe of the central hills called the Arverni. Oh. And they will give their name to the modern French region of Auvergne, 
uh, mm. which has come up a little bit in the podcast because it's part of Northern Aquitaine. So there's like a count of Northern who becomes important. Um, and it's very close to Gévaudan. It's in that very mm. same sort of hilly, uh, like central, Region. yeah, like central southern France sort of. Mm. Yeah. So it's unclear what Celtillus's precise role was in this tribe. He was some kind of uh, chief or or senior counselor, because um, their yeah. their political structure is very vague. We're only hearing about it from Caesar's point of view, so he's putting it in a very Roman framework where he's like, "Oh, the Senate of the Gauls," and it's like the Gauls probably didn't have a Senate, um, <laughs> and uh, but he is called like a, a sort of prince or leader. Um, uh. And uh, at some point, apparently, Celtillus did supposedly try to unite all the Gauls together and, and be king of all the Gaulish tribes. Um, and uh, Caesar tells us that Celtillus, quote, had held the supremacy of entire Gaul and had been uh, put to death by his fellow citizens for this reason, because he aimed at sovereign power. Oh. So basically, he tried to be king of all the Gauls, so he got put to death. Which is very ironic, coming from Caesar who yeah. later gets accused of trying to become a king and gets assassinated. <laughs> yeah. So, the interesting, interesting... Karma. Interesting thing for Caesar to say. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> so, um, Vercingetorix, uh, he was destined to fulfil his father's dream of bringing yeah. unity to the Gauls, but Yay. would meet an even more tragic end, sadly. Aww. So... This brings us back to the meeting in the woods between the Gaulish tribal leaders. Uh, they decided to unite. It was freedom or death. Um, and we don't exactly know how he did it, but in just a few months, Vercingetorix, who uh, rose to become king of all of this free Gaulish region of like the west and the middle of Gaul. Um, yeah. We, we get the feeling from Caesar's commentary that he was a man of great charisma. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Caesar does highlight the ruthless and cruel aspects of Vercingetorix, obviously. Of course. But he does acknowledge that he is at least a very competent Able. leader. Yeah. Mm. And we can infer that there was some degree of love for him, because otherwise mm. why would people... Or respect. ...put up with him. Yeah, exactly. Um, And... Uh, but unfortunately, uh, to quote uh, one of my favourite podcasts, uh, Ancient History Fangirl, uh, leading the Gauls is like herding cats. Um, so Vercingetorix has his, has his work cut out with, for him. Yeah. And Hands full. He, really has to, he really has to be ruthless because he sees the Romans, how organised they are, and they do this yeah. through ruthless, um, yes. like breaking down their soldiers so they can build them up. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know if you've heard of the practice of decimation, where if if an army does something bad, uh, every tenth man in their army is 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 killed. Oh, yeah. And that's where we get yeah, the yeah. term uh, decimated from. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So decimated doesn't mean wiped out. It just means 10% are killed, um, <laughs> which is still bad. <laughs> At least it's not 20%, I guess. Yeah, but when people say decimated, they usually mean, like, wiped out. But that yeah. it's, like, one in ten are killed. But that's still bad. <laughs> it's still terrible. That is. So, 
we 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 get the news of this uni- weird unification from from Caesar because he's suddenly noticing that Gauls are starting to attack uh, uh, the 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 Gaulish tribes loyal to Caesar. So there's there's Gaulish tribes like the Aedui who are loyal to Caesar, and they're suddenly getting harassed by this seemingly very powerful Gaulish force in central France. Mm. Um, the native Carnutian Gauls were the first to act, <laughs> targeting and killing Roman merchants in the central town of Genaboom, uh, which would uh, later become the city of Orléans. Fun fact. Oh. And uh, here's a question. Where we got so, that so, name from? Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I, I think there stopped being a city there, and then there started being a city there again for reasons that may have to do with the Romans killing everyone. <laughs> so, so yeah, we actually get a quote from Caesar about how the Gauls sort of communicate, which is interesting. Um, so he mm. says uh, the report is quickly spread among all the states of Gaul. For whenever a more important and remarkable event takes place, they transmit the intelligence through their lands and districts by a shout. The others take it up in succession and pass it to their neighbours, as happened on this occasion. For the things which were done at Geneboom at sunrise were heard in the territories of the Arverni before the end of the first watch, and is an extent of more than 160 miles. You know, I'm just imagining like them being like, they're just odling almost (coughs) yeah yodeling across the the plains you know what it reminds me of and then someone hears it and they go lord of the rings it it reminds me of um yeah it does remind you of the lighting the beacons in lord of the rings but it reminds me also of um from 101 dalmatians when they do the the twilight bark oh yeah yeah, because the... oh. <laughs> and like one dog would be barking and like sending the message that like the pup they found the puppies and then and then the dog in the next house would be barking, which is one of my favorite sequences in any movie. Because um, <laughs> I I always like to think that when dogs bark, um, they're not just being annoying; it's actually a conspiracy just to, to rescue puppies. <laughs> um, so so um. Meanwhile, uh, Versigedrix uh, is trying to bring together his own tribe, the Arverni. They're doing some, you know, uh, team building techniques. Uh, mm. They're like, no, you don't put the sword in your mouth, Gerald. You put it in the Roman. Yeah. And <laughs> Gerald, also dramatic name. You, I, I that doing... If you fall, you'll land on it. You point it away from you. Yeah. Don't run. Don't run. Brian. Don't Brian. run with it. <laughs> Brisk okay, so, walking. However, um, Vercingetorix's uncle, who's, who has a brilliant name, Gobernitio. <laughs> it's like Goblin. He is sort of the one of the chiefs of the Arverni, and he 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 doesn't want uh, Vercingetorix rising up like his father did. Um, so mm. he he possibly in an act of mercy, instead of executing Vercingetorix on the spot for you know trying to rile everyone up and make everyone fight the Romans. He he simply kicks Vercingetorix out of the their capital at which is this uh, Gaulish uh, citadel called uh, Gogovia. 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 It's this lovely hilltop. Uh, what's called an oxidum, which is a Latin word, but it means basically a fortified mm. town, and mm. it's fortified by these wooden walls. So remember that. That's how mm. Gaulish towns are. They're basically just a circle of a wooden wall around Wood. a you know. 
bunch of thatched little houses. Um, yeah. So, um, then another quote from Caesar, quote, The rest of the Arverni nobles were of the opinion that such an enterprise ought not to be hazarded. He, uh, Vercingetorix did not, however, desist, but held it in, in the country a levy of the needy and desperate. So he's, he's you know, bringing sort of, you know, ne'er-do-wells and bandits all together to form mm. his little army. Having collected such a body of troops, he brings over to his sentiments such of his fellow citizens as he has access to. He exhorts them to take up arms on, in behalf of the general freedom, and having assembled great forces, he drives from the state his opponents. So, he comes back to Gogovia, he drives out his uncle with the troops that he's found in the countryside, and he takes over Gogovia. And from there, begins to expand. Mm. Yeah, bringing together more tribes under his banner as they rally yeah. against the Roman threat. Yes. Yes, lighting the beacons, shouting everywhere. Um, so, uh, thus, in, in a remarkably short period of time, Vercingetorix is declared some kind of leader. We're not sure if he was called king, but... His name does mean a uh, great warrior king, so we can assume he was called king at, at some point. Um, and he assembles together the loyalty of a number of other tribes, uh, many of whom give their names to various uh, 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 cities. There's the, the one of them is called the Sinones, who give their name to Son, and one of them is the uh. Parisii, who of course give their name to Paris. Um, mm. And there's also the Turones, who give their name to Tour. So we're seeing a lot of familiar okay, names popping up. sound like the name of like a pastor. <laughs> Taroni, yeah. Well, yeah. well, these are the these are the Latin names for the tribes. So mm. you know they are Ital- They are essentially calling them things in in the language that Italian. will become Italian. Yeah. Um. So Vercingetorix ensures the loyalty of these tribes by taking the children of their rulers as hostages, which is a thing that we see all the way up to the Franks doing that, Mm. um, taking hostages, um, basically being like, you know, behave or I'll kill your son. And, um, he also makes life hell for tribes that continue to support the Romans. Um, yeah. uh, convincing You're the Gauls against your own, as a... your own kind as he probably yeah said. and this is all at a time where Caesar is back in Italy having to deal with some legal issues oh, so he's like, oh, he's like while the cat's away the mice will play basically so um, most of the Gaulish tribes become convinced that right now in the, at least in the short term it's better to follow Vercingetorix than Caesar because you know he's not even there Either they'll get killed now by Vercingetorix, or they'll get killed later by Caesar. So, which would you rather? Yeah, let's put off our death for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Vercingetorix also targeted uh, not only Gaulish tribes loyal to Caesar, but tribes that were supplying Caesar's legions. So Caesar's gone, but his legions are still in the region, mainly in the east, uh, in what we would now call Burgundy and Lorraine. Hmm. but back then was not not were not called that because the when Burgundians... I hear Burgundy, I just think of the color. Yeah, well, the Burgundy only gets called Burgundy because of the Burgundians, and Lorraine only got, gets called Lorraine because of Lothar. So they're not called that yet. Just the Rhine mm. region, let's call it that. Um, yeah. So it is through these legions that are getting their supplies cut 
by these rebellious Gauls. Their reports eventually yeah. filter back to Caesar in Italy um, uh, of the stirring of the Gauls. Ooh. At this point, um, a Gaulish army led by one of the Arverni leaders, not Vercingetorix, but a different leader, um, mm. moves to attack Narbo, uh, the the Roman city on the south coast, which is now called Narbonne, which we mentioned, basically Caesar's capital. Um, Narbo, no go. Don't go to Narbo. Well, they do go to Narbo. So Caesar hastily gathers a small army to aid Narbo. Um, he hasn't got his legions. They're all up north. Um, so he has to sort of get, quickly gather together some mercenaries and stuff. Um, and he he makes it over the Alps in a very short amount of time. They have to like clear like huge snowbanks um, to get through the Alps mm. quickly. Mm. And then Caesar does manage to make it to Narbo. He does manage to scare off this Gaulish force, and they re- they recede back into the woods. And I'm just imagining them kind of fading back, like shadows. yeah, basically they're like Homer uh, receding into the hedge. Um, oh, <laughs> basically. And then Caesar heads north to meet his legions, and then he sort of turns them to march straight into the middle of Gaul. Mm. So he's coming in. Vercingetorix uh, had managed to more or less uh, unite the Gauls at this point, but once Caesar arrived back and the legions got their act together, they started losing ground. They lost a bunch of skirmishes. And uh, with a series of losses in central eastern France, uh, where tribes uh, either surrendered to the Romans or were defeated by the Romans, Vercingetorix had to start adopting more desperate tactics. Um, So he does a bit of a huddle, with his generals, uh, mm-hmm. and starts to devise a plan to slow down and eventually, hopefully, destroy the Roman legions. Ooh. So, while Caesar had used divide and conquer strategies so far in Gaul, Vercingetorix yep. now settled on two other tried and true strategies uh, scorched earth and guerrilla warfare. Mm. Now, guerrilla, do you know, could you explain what yes. guerrilla warfare is? We'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today. Which was positive, for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Well, it's like, you know, usually done at night. Bit sneaky, sneaky. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you don't just openly... It's like not open combat. You're doing like kind of like sly little stuff. Like, you know, yeah. so you slow down or kill them off bit by bit kind of thing. Yeah. And you br- you break up your army into little bits. Um, yeah, it's like having yeah. like little bandit groups. Yeah, and um, and then it ends up feeling like you have more than you than uh, you have because How, the Romans are marching through. Yeah, it seems through. like there's a lot more. Seems like they're surrounded. Yeah. Um, yeah, when there might really they, be like five people. <laughs> yeah, and they mainly do this. Uh, they use this to sabotage uh, Roman supply chains um, and sort of terrorize. Uh, Roman allied settlements. So they're, they're, they're terrorizing other Gauls who have sided with the Romans. Um, mm. The scorched earth part, this is 
even more brutal. So Vercingetorix has many Gaulish settlements basically evacuated and mm. burned to the ground. So he, he basically destroys a bunch of his own settlements, makes the entire Gaulish population recede into the woods with his army. <laughs> and so that way, when the legion arrives in the next town, they're like, oh, finally we can get food and stuff. They arrive, and all the cows are dead, town. all the houses are burned down, ghost town, all the crops are burned. There's nothing left. And they're like, oh, um, we have to keep walking to the next nearest place to get some rest and food. Yeah. And then they get to the next one, and it's the same. Yeah. And by that time, they're all tired, and then... Yeah. By this point, Caesar's like, I know what they're doing. They're trying to just basically starve our army to death rather than face us in battle, because they know they can't beat us mm. in open battle. The fact that the Gauls in huge numbers, by the way, were willing to go along with this policy means that A, things must have been really desperate, and yeah. B, Vercingetorix must have been amazingly persuasive. Yeah. His charisma modifier is, at, like, at least plus eight. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even plus nine. Like, Ooh. he's definitely proficient, like, double proficient in, like, persuasion and intimidation. Mm. Um, I don't know how many of our patrons play D&D, but... That's a reference to that. Um, yeah. However... If you don't, you should stop. Uh, yes. But there, there were some who um, objected to his policy in, in Central Gaul. Some of these were part of a, a powerful central clan called the uh, Baturages. Mm. And a uh, quote from Caesar, uh, more than 20 Bitter. towns of, of the Baturages are burned in one day. Conflagrations are beheld in every quarter. So basically, wherever you look, there's smoke coming from these... Settlements. And although all bore this with great regret, uh, yet they laid before themselves this consolation that as the victory was certain, they could quickly recover their losses. So, they're like, you know, once we kill the Romans, we can go back to our farms. Well, yeah. However, the Biturgies object when it comes to setting fire to their main stronghold and sort of resource yeah. center, which is the mining town of Avaricum. Um, which they call, quote, the fairest city of Gaul. Like, we're not burning this uh, city down. Uh, so the leader of the Baturages convinces the other Gauls that the strong garrison in, in Avaricum and the good defences are sort of, they're better off just shutting their gates and, you know, mm. letting the Romans besiege them because the Romans aren't going to win in a siege. They're already starving. Yeah, so, I'm tired. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so the city's got this tall, like, wooden palisade road. Uh, well, I mean, wooden palisade okay, wall, I should say. Yeah, it's in a defensible location. It's on a hill surrounded by a boggy uh, swamp on three sides. Oh, that helps. Yeah. And uh, it's actually where the uh, city of Bourges is. I mentioned Bourges a few times. And the Baturages also offered refuge for Gaulish civilians from the surrounding territory who had to burn down all their homes. So the the population of Avaricum just basically like doubles or triples or quadruples all these people cramming into this stronghold. Mm. And uh, Vercingetorix was against this whole idea. Uh, yeah. He wanted the Baturages to stay in line, stay with the scorched earth plan, leave the town, burn it all down, withdraw to the hills, they can go back to their mines later. Like their mines are going to help yeah. them in the war. 
Um, yeah. But Vercingetorix is overruled by a vote of the Gaulish leaders. Oh. So the Gaulish civilians, certain that it's the safest place for them, start to cram in- into the city, as we said. And yeah. sure enough, it wasn't long before the Romans found oh. the nest of Gauls. So, ducks. <clears throat> yes, but as, I, as I've said, it's going to be hard for the Romans. So, yeah. As the Romans approach the city, Vercingetorix's main army isn't in the city. Um, instead, yeah. they're sort of secretly following the Roman army from behind, sort of cutting off their supply mm. line, harassing foraging mm. parties, doing the guerrilla part of, of, the, of the tactic. Oh. And, um, yeah, Caesar's sending, because uh, he, he's not getting supplies from, like, uh, from back, you know, back east. Yeah. Uh, he's sending people out to forage more food, but they're finding that the Gauls are guarding the the, the, the best foraging spots, I guess. They're guarding the berries. Um, can't get those mushrooms. <laughs> so, can't do that, yeah. All the animals are dead, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's not nice. They're really running out of food. Mm. They're down to the stale crackers or something. Oh. So now we come to the Siege of Avaricum, which is, happens in early 52 BCE. It rained the entire time. It wasn't nice. But the Romans, as ever, very disciplined. They they started building a ramp um, out of earth and mud uh, on the sort of non-swampy side of the city. And uh, as well as a despite couple of siege rain. towers. Despite the rain. Um, as well as a couple of siege towers that they made from the surrounding wood. Um, and mm. which they could sort of wheel over to the wall when the time was right. And in response, uh, the Gauls in Avaricum uh, sort of got their own timber out, and they made the walls higher. So you've got the <laughs> Romans building this ramp higher and higher, oh and then God, the, the like Gauls are cartoon, building the walls. Like, moment, are you missing it? <laughs> like, almost like cartoons, it's, like, they're like, put a bit of more dirt on the mountain, they're like, oh, we're nearly there, and then, zoom, up comes yeah. some more wall. It's very Bugs Bunny, <laughs> sort of oh, building, building, you know, borrowing around. And, um, uh, about halfway through building their ramp, uh, the the Romans ran out of food. The Romans are literally... They keep going, although they've completely run out of supplies. Like, completely. Like, not even Caesar oh. is eating. Um, and uh, as well as building their walls higher, the Gauls uh, are also... Actually, this is very Bugs Bunny. They also, because it's a town full of miners, tunnel underneath the ramp. Oh. Um, yeah. And then they, they, they take their torches down into the tunnel and they set fire to the ramp from below. Ooh. So it starts, so it starts to sag and smoke starts to come out of it. And the Romans are like, what the hell's happening? They're like, oh my it, God, it's the gods. They're angry. Yeah. It doesn't entirely catch fire because it is very wet and rainy. And it just muddy. sort of smolders and the, the mud sort of, yeah, the mud sort of melts away and... Um, it sort of sags a bit. So the Romans are able to keep building on top of that, but they are getting sabotaged severely by the Gauls. Um, and, um... Gauls are being tricky, little sneaky. Yeah. I'm liking it so far. Hopefully they'll so the, the So the the is smoking. The Romans are, are, are you know, fiercely trying to, trying to build it again. As they're doing this, the Gauls uh, open up the gates... And charge out of them and Ooh. start to set fire to their siege towers as well. 
<laughs> so the, it's just chaos. The Romans are trying to defend their uh, their siege weapons that they spent so much time building without any food, and um, they they manage to sort of fend off this little Ga- this little Gaulish attack. The Gauls go back into the walls, but by this point, Caesar's like he's wet. He's not happy. He's like, I've had yeah. enough. We're gonna assault okay. this fortress. I don't care that it's like this that ends a storm now. is about to happen. With this ends now. So yeah, um, a violent storm happened sort of the following evening. So the Gauls actually weren't expecting an assault, but uh, the Romans did. They they got they got up to the top of the ramp. <gasps> they managed to climb against all odds over the walls. The Gauls were oh. caught by surprise. Oh. So the Gauls, so the Romans uh, fought them. They captured part of the wall. Uh, the Gauls fell back to their second line of defense, which was in the city streets. They were like, we'll just, um, you know, lure the Romans down. In the streets. Yeah, and then we'll fight Aligned them in the streets. Into like little narrow alleyways. <clears throat> exactly. The Romans, however, uh, they know what they they know what these tricky Gauls are doing, and the yeah, Romans, like, oh. the Romans surround the entire city along the entire wall. And then, because Ooh. every Roman soldier carries two javelins, they start to lob their javelins down. Oh. These, like, these are, I think these are about two legions. So this is about at least 10,000 Roman soldiers, Ooh. each with two javelins, hurling them down yeah. into the city, impaling whoever hasn't found shelter. Um, so the Gauls, they, they scatter and they hide. Being massacred. And that's when the Roman legions start to slowly, slowly close in on the city oh. in a slow, methodical oh. way. As they go, they kill men, they kill women, they kill children. Okay. They're not taking slaves oh. today. They massacre oh. every single person in Avaricum. Oh. Um, so Caesar, cheerfully... Uh, says of the Gaulish army in Avarican, uh, out of all that number, which amounted to about 40,000, scarcely 800 who fled from the town when they heard the first alarm, reached Vercingetorix in safety. And uh, he, the night being now far spent, received them in silence after their flight. Hmm. So Vercingetorix, he, he has to withdraw his army, which was harassing them outside the city. Um because yeah. they couldn't take the legion in an open battle. Um, however, he managed to recover his troops' spirits with a rousing speech, mm. which Caesar... Oh, it's always a rousing, rousing yeah. speech. It's weird, because Caesar is telling us about this rousing speech that he couldn't possibly have heard. <laughs> but get, Obviously someone else told making... him about it, and he was damn impressed. <coughs> maybe, or maybe Caesar's just making it all up. But whatever. There is a point... There is a point to Caesar building up Vercingetorix and making him seem uh, like this great and powerful leader because Caesar defeating Vercingetorix, that looks even better if Vercingetorix is great, you know? So Vercingetorix supposedly... Yeah, supposedly Vercingetorix says to his people, uh, don't be disheartened or alarmed at our loss. The Romans didn't conquer by valour on the battlefield, but by a kind of art and skill in assault with which we ourselves are unacquainted. Whoever expected every event in the war to be favourable is an idiot. I never held an opinion <laughs> that Avaricum ought to be defended in the first place. We only got into this mess because of the naive Biturages and the other tribes who also took refuge in the town. 
However, we'll soon make up for it with better victories. I will, with all my might, bring over those tribes who have severed themselves from their fellow Gauls, and will create a union throughout the whole of Gaul, a union that not even the whole world can withstand. I have almost accomplished it already, but in the meantime, we must begin to fortify our camp to fend off the sudden attacks of the enemy. Mm. It's a pretty good speech. It is, Dan. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Caesar calls on his other legions. So this has only been part mm. of the Roman force. This hasn't been the whole Roman force. Um, oh, right. So he, he goes from having two legions in the, in the middle of Gaul to having ten legions. Um, Whoa! And from there they like sort of... 60,000! Yes, they sort of meet in the middle and then they sort of fan out to finish the Gauls. And Caesar himself, he makes a he makes a beeline to Gogovia, which, if you remember, was the city go, of go, the Arverni, uh, Vercingetorix's tribe. Uh, so naturally, Vercingetorix follows Caesar's army. Um, yeah. But unlike yeah, Caesar, unlike Caesar, Vercingetorix doesn't divide his troops. He brings his entire army down to Caesar's smaller Ooh. contingent. So yeah, he's he's doing a tactic of like rather than try to split up his forces to fight all of the legions at once, he'll just kill off each legion one by one. Oh. And he's going to start okay. with Caesar's legion, because you got to kill Caesar first. Kill the head of the exactly. snake. Because um, the only reason that the legions aren't being useless is because Caesar's there. <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> and if according, he's gone. According to Caesar, at least. So, because <laughs> um, remember, he's the one writing everything down. <laughs> True. Um, He's going, they're useless, they're hopeless without me. Yes. So, fortunately... um, Wouldn't even be able to learn how to tie their shoes. Yeah, Vercingetorix, he knows the land better than Caesar, so he overtakes Caesar's army. um, Yeah. And he burns all of the bridges leading to Gogovia. So, it's a bit of a slog for Caesar to get Go, go, go. Go, go, go to Gogovia. And so, Vercingetorix um, and his entire 30,000-strong army is there waiting for Caesar by the time the six legions that he's brought with him get there. You know, it makes um, it seem a lot less impressive when you think he's, he's like, du- like Caesar's double. Like, oh, it's not like Caesar had less, but it's fighting against a bigger number. That sounds cooler for Caesar. Well, Caesar has, uh, he has six legions, but I don't know how depleted these legions are. Um, um, I think you said so they're probably. Legions. He has six legions with him. He has ten legions overall in Gaul. Oh. Okay. So the others have split off and, and gone other places. He's just got... Yeah. He's got the strongest force of six legions. Yeah. So roughly half, maybe a bit more than half of the Roman force in Gaul. So they reach Gogovia and they see all of the... Uh, Gogovia is quite high on this hill. Um, and these are the volcanic slopes that we, we mm. encountered during the Beast of Gévaudan episode uh, um it's a beautiful country here in, in Auburn. Mm. the city is high on this hill and the the gauls are, are like arrayed on the hill in sort of these makeshift uh fortifications uh sort of sort of like machu picchu like little walls like yeah. along along the the hill that they've sort of made mm. in, at the last minute like imagine machu picchu but way less Sheer of um, this sort of mountainy region is called the Massif Central in, mm. in French. It's the ancient volcanic mountain range. So uh, Vercingetorix's army was stationed in these on the surrounding slopes between mm-hmm. Caesar and Gogovia. 
Caesar managed to capture one of the smaller hills. And by doing so, he actually managed to block a stream and cut off Gogovia's water supply. Damn, that's not good. Yeah. So now the Romans were were hungry, uh, but the Gauls were thirsty. So... (laughs) So both are suffering, basically. Um, Yeah. And, but despite this small victory and a clever distraction from Caesar's cavalry, the Romans tried and failed to assault Gagovia and took heavy casualties. Mm. So Caesar was forced to retreat from Gagovia back Mm. up north where the Romans were having a bit more luck subjugating the Gauls. Um... And, uh, but, you know, Caesar, he, he's lost a battle to Vercingetorix. And, um, also this leads to the, the Aedui, who are the Romans' most powerful allied Gaulish tribe, turning against them. Ooh. And they've got, they've got some strong cavalry that, that Vercingetorix is gonna enjoy having. Um, Although Caesar does, when he goes back up north, he does manage to recruit some Germanic uh, Swaby cavalry. So, you know, he's got another Mm. source of cavalry that he gets. But, um, yeah. (laughs) So, as Caesar went north, Versagenix went south. And remember what's to the south? Um. People. What's to the south of, uh, of, um, you know, in the far south of France? France. What's in Septimania? (laughs) The sea? The Romans. The Roman territory is there. So Versagetorix goes down to attack Romans. I said people and you said no. Yeah, I meant, I meant which people? (laughs) Narvo. He goes to Narvo. God, don't even consider Romans people, Benjamin. So then Caesar marches south again <laughs> to, to cut off Vercingetorix with, yeah. now with his fancy Germanic cavalry. Um, however, spurred by the victory at Gregovia, Vercingetorix's forces were also gathering strength um, and their own cavalry made an attack on Caesar's army as it was marching south. So while Caesar's army was in the sort of the mm. column, the marching column, not, not ready for mm. battle, the, the Gaulish cavalry just comes in like slams mm. into them and you know takes out a bunch of them caesar does manage to fend off the attack um and uh Vercingetorix withdraws to a city called elysia huh. yes so this leads to the possibly most famous battle in caesar's career um yeah which is called the siege or battle of elysia and this happened in September 52 BCE. This has all happened in less than a year, by the way. Elysia. <laughs> Elysia. <laughs> um, it, it's not a place that I, I think you want to be associated with, Eliza. Not good things Aww. happen there. Damn. So this is like a mega seat. It lasts quite a while. And the Romans basically, they surround the entire city. Um, and this is another opportunity, another sort of fortified town. But it is, it is on more of a plain situation. It's a bit less defensible. And the Romans, basically, they create a second wall around Elysia's Ooh. wall. <laughs> so we've got the inner... We've got the Gaulish Double. wall. And then we've got the Roman wall around the Gaulish wall. <laughs> and then there's a sort of 
there's a sort of no man's land in the middle where you don't want to go. So it's like two trenches, like in World War. Yeah, only only One. they're they're up round trenches. Yeah, the Romans they build this very intricate wall. They've got like platforms and everything. It's basically like scaffolding oh. with like you know these huge um, wooden piles. They build this in a crazy short amount of time, actually. Like they're there for less than a week, and they've already built it. Uh, so it just goes oh. to show how well these Roman armies were trained. Or how much uh, Caesar's like, hurry up and finish it. <laughs> yeah. No sleep actually, for you till it's done. You can die while you do it. In in peacetime, the Roman legions were basically infrastructure builders. Carpenters. Like, they they built the Roman roads were built by soldiers. But so they were built by the Romans. Yeah, but like you know, soldiers on the off season yeah. were builders. So well, that's good for them. They needed something to do, and also building roads would you'd still keep your muscle. Exactly, sure, and as we've seen, task. as we've seen in medieval France with with knights, you know, knights they only fight. So when there's peace, they keep fighting, and it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so where's the fight? Where's the fight? Let's create a fight. Okay, so you're gonna like this even better because the Romans they created okay. this this um the second wall. Then they realized that there is another Gaulish force consisting of the Adui cavalry <laughs> and um some other people. Like Vercingetorix is in the town. But he's got he's got a cousin who's commanding an army outside the town, further away. Caesar realizes that this army is going to come in, and this army is bigger than the Gaulish army that's in the city. Um, oh. So, so what do you think Caesar does? Burns. He's got this wall. He's got this lovely wall built. He's trying to wait out. He's trying to starve out Elysia, but he's, there's going to be people coming at him at his wall from behind. So what does he do? He digs a secret tunnel. Nah. A Trojan horse. What's going to stop the Gaulish army from coming at him from behind? A javelin. No, no, what? A river. What's Caesar already done in a very short amount of time that he could just do again? A wall. Yes. Caesar builds wall number three. Woo! So now Caesar... have one wall when you could have three. (laughs) So now Caesar has built a wall, a, a, a wall facing inward and a wall facing outward. It's, it's, it's Fort Donut. It's a donut <laughs> fort. So now Caesar has, so now there are, there are three walls. And then the, the, so the Gaulish army comes to attack the wall. Um, really, the Gauls should have built a fourth wall. That would have been great to see, but they don't do that. <laughs> um, um because, you know, the Gauls on the outs- on the outside are desperately trying to save the Gauls on the inside. Because that's where Versailles And also they is. probably don't ha- they don't have fast wall-making abilities like the Romans. Yeah, exactly. So the Gaulish relief army uh, severely outnumbers Caesar's, but the Romans successfully defend two attacks before the Gauls finally uh, break through the outermost wall. Oh. They basically amass on this one place... While the while Vercingetorix no. on the inside, seeing what's happening, goes and attacks the the walls on the inside. Uh, almost like a pincer movement, but not quite as much as you can do of a pincer movement in that situation. Exactly, it's it's very hard to explain on the podcast. Uh, there's a great video uh, by the YouTube channel Historia Civilis, which explains mm. this battle and all of Vercingetorix's other battles. Um, he's got videos on all of them. Um, 
So I'd recommend watching that if you want the moving diagrams and stuff of what I'm trying to explain. But basically... Send me the link the gist, to that as well. I will send you a link to that as well. But the gist of this is uh, that the Gauls break through the outermost wall, but they, were, they are quickly expelled thanks to a well-timed Roman cavalry charge that comes outside the walls. And these, oh. are, the German, these are the German Germanic cavalry, actually. Um, oh. They circle around outside the walls and hit the Gauls from behind, forcing the Gauls to flee mm. after they've just penetrated oh. the wall. Oh. At, one point the, so at one point, the Romans are fighting on both sides at once. Their forces spread extremely thin along this these two walls. Um, and also, a valiant fighter in this battle on the Roman side was a lesser-known commander called Marcus Antonius. Ho-ho! Later to be known as Mark Antony. Um, <laughs> so this is where Mark Antony appears in history, um, who oh. had become Caesar's right-hand man after Elysia. But yeah, th- this, is Vercinget- this is where Vercingetorix's darkest hour happens. Because they've lost this great opportunity to, to breach the wall, get the other army in, and now the city is starving. Oh. So Vercingetorix does possibly the worst decision of his career. Um, not a decision I would have liked to have made. There's not enough food in the city. So he makes all of the women and children leave. Oh. He sends like them... Like to be slaughtered. Well... The hope was that the Romans would either let them pass, which these are Romans, or mm. worst case scenario, they'd be taken as slaves, but they'd at least have their lives. Mm. Uh, but I guess the Romans did not choose either option and went with a third option of death. Well, what do you think the Romans did do? Killed them all. They didn't. They did nothing. So they just like didn't let them pass. Yep, they, they, they kept whatever gate situation they had, kept it closed. Oh my god, so they just pretended like they were invisible. <laughs> yeah, they just pretended they weren't there. All of these women and children stuck in no man's land, no food, exposed to the elements, slowly die over Aww. the next few days of exposure Aww. and starvation. While Aww. the Romans and the Gauls on both sides watch. Watch. Yeah, oh. it's absolutely horrifying. So this, unfortunately, rather than, you know, making the Gauls, you know, happier because they now have more food to share them, to share between them, completely breaks their spirits as they've been forced to watch their wives, their daughters, their little their sons children. die. Yeah. Oh. So Vercingetorix, seeing that, there's no more hope left, decides he will do the noble thing and surrender himself with the hope that Rome will take him and spare the city. Oh. So, to mark the occasion, Vercingetorix dons his most magnificent ceremonial armour and he rides out yeah. alone uh, through the donut fort. Oh. Um, and then oh. he, go- he comes to Caesar's camp. I'm just picturing camp. that. I know. Why do they make this? Oh. It's such a movie moment. I know, it's such a movie moment. He rides to Caesar's camp and he rides in a circle around Caesar's camp. I don't know if she's showing off or something. And then he comes before Caesar, he dismounts, he takes off all of his armour and he gives himself up to Caesar. Oh. 
who sits sort of enthroned in the center of the camp. And there is a very famous Mm. painting of this, which is actually the cover Mm. of the first episode of Battle Royale. (laughs) So there's that. So the surrender of the Vercingetorix was effectively the surrender of all the Gauls. Leaders from the other tribes that had supported Vercingetorix sent envoys to declare their submission to Rome. There were a few more rebellions, but none as big as Vercingetorix. Nobody who managed to unite the Gauls into any kind of cohesive force. Yeah. There were uh, there were rebels in a city called Uxaladunum in the southwest uh, who they had, uh, rather than kill them all, uh, Caesar cut off all of their hands and set them free, which just seems oh. me- even more mean than, than yeah, death. Yeah, because they can't even do... Without your hands, you're useless. Yeah. So they just go off and presumably die in the woods or something. I don't know. Aww. So Caesar conquers the whole of Gaul. And uh, attempts to conquer Britain. Uh, of course, he doesn't get very far. Before using his new glory to go back to Italy, cross the Rubicon with his legions, and take Rome as its dictator, leading eventually to a stabby stabby situation. Hmm. Well, not hmm for Caesar. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> 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 as in, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah, but poor person. Back in Gaul, uh, the fun never stops because we, of course, have genocide. Oh. An estimated 2 million Gauls, so around 20% of their population, were either killed Damn. or enslaved. Uh, and um, the rest had their culture stripped away uh, and suppressed. Oh. The Druids were, were uh, driven oh, away. Not the Druids! Not the Druids, yeah. Um, as they were gradually assimilated into Roman culture, so that by the time we get to the Franks, the Gauls are essentially provincial Romans. Roman. Yeah. Oh, I really like Druids. Yeah. Hm. But what happened to Vercingetorix? Did he get killed? Not on the spot. He is taken Did Caesar, back Caesar, like, take him back and, like, yeah. created him off, kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. be like, hey, look what I have, and then kill so Caesar's, it takes a while for Caesar to, you know, do all this, these political shenanigans, become dictator, and then hold his triumph. So Vercingetorix is imprisoned for six years. We're not entirely sure where, but it was probably the, uh, the Mamertine prison in Rome, uh, which was where they basically kept people on death row. Um, so Vercingetorix oh. was on death row for six years. And then in in 46 BC, two years before he got assassinated, Caesar held his triumph, uh, supposedly to celebrate his uh, conquest of Gaul, um, though in reality it was to celebrate his conquest of Rome. (laughs) And um, Vercingetorix was was put back in the grand ceremonial Gaulish armour that he'd surrendered to Caesar. Mm. Um, but, Caesar just been keeping it for that parade, basically. Yeah, but this time, instead of uh, being on a horse, he was tied to a wooden post on the top of uh, a float, which was then carted so through the city. So basically, a cro- it was like not a cross, but it was a it was a po- it was oh. a post. It was like like was a pope a pole for fire, like, like a mast burning. Yeah, yeah, like a mm. stick, but without the you know without the burning part. Um, mm. Yeah, so he was carted uh, through the city behind Caesar's chariot. And then when the, the triumph uh, reached its end, uh, 
Vercingetorix was lowered into a pit. With lions? No, 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 not with lions. They're not quite at the lion stage yet. That, that's more Bears. of a later crazy emperor thing. No, 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 he's... Um, Snakes. This is actually a very... Uh, this is actually a way that uh, Roman nobility are usually executed. Um, so it's actually supposedly a dignified death, but it is a bit horrifying too. It's basically this pit where you go and uh, somebody, somebody's there in the dark uh, and they... And, uh, Stab they, you. No, they garrot you. Which is where oh. you're, you're basically yeah. against they put a wall. the string around and then they have the, the stick and it turns and it turns and it turns. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I learned that from watching the Borgias. Yes. <laughs> it does happen in the Borgias. Yeah, because in season one, like one of, I think of season one or season two, one of the like characters is like ex- explaining how you do it. Yeah. Oh, God. What happens to his body? Versus get, we don't know. They probably um, dumped it somewhere, didn't they? They probably dumped it somewhere. I mean, the the idea was for you to disappear into this pit and never emerge. Mm. So no burial, no anything. You were forgotten. You were oh. a non-entity. So, however... Well, that didn't um, quite work out. <laughs> yeah, well, Versagetus was, was, yeah, was basically a living trophy for Rome's conquest of Gaul. And he's mm. even put on coins, like... Coins that celebrate yeah. the conquest of Gaul have Vercingetorix's face on them. Um, so, speaking of representations, let's get into Enchante. Oh my god, yeah, we still have to do all that. This part won't be as long. <laughs> and we will be getting into our rating categories of Enchante, En Garde, Voulez-vous, Oulala, and Levion Throne on the exclusive Patreon version of this episode. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast if you want to hear the rest of that. We've also got an episode going into the various noble principalities of high medieval France. We've got a review of the French-inspired film Ratatouille and how the TV show Vikings handles the siege of Paris. We've also got a deep dive on the famous castle of Carcassonne and its role in France's internal crusade against the Cathar heretics. And we've got more bonus figures like Vercingetorix. So far, we've passed judgment on Robert Giscard, the Norman conqueror of Sicily, and Margaret the Black, the notorious Countess of Flanders from the reign of Louis IX. In addition, in 2023, we'll be bringing you an episode all about Dante's Divine Comedy and how the kings of France fit into it, as well as a special birthday episode for Eliza in which we have Brie Rayburn from Pontifax on to talk about a very special French saint named Guinefort. In the meantime, here on the free feed, we'll get back to the French monarchs as soon as we can, We are, again, sorry about the delay, but we hope this little interlude made up for it and scratched your Battle Royale itch. Obviously, I can't say for sure when Eliza will be feeling better enough to record, but go follow us on social media and you'll be the first to know when we're back on schedule. Until then, au revoir from me, don't go on horses, and wash your bloody hands. Bye!